Welcome back to Takes by the Lake. It's the Browns season preview edition of your 23rd favorite podcast. I'm your host, Doug Lee Maurice from Cleveland.com. And after a great Indians pod last week, as promised, this is your Browns season preview. Now, if you don't listen to the whole thing before Sunday, you can still listen to it later. That's allowed. But I wanted to get you ready for this season. We're doing a ton of stories at Cleveland.com. Make sure you're reading Mary Kay Cabot, Dan Labe, Scott Patsko, me if you want, Terry Pluto, everybody at Cleveland.com. Great stuff. This is the audio component of that. Four guests, four big fat. They're healthy. They're, they work out. They eat celery. Four healthy guests. First is Clayton Bram. He is a fan. He operates a Twitter account called Cleology. He does his own hype videos each week. And he's telling us why he's excited, why this is different, what he's maybe worried about. He's going to like set the tone, okay? Then we're going to go to Albert Breer of Sports Illustrated, one of the very best NFL writers in the country. Great context nationally, okay, uh, about where the Browns fit in. He's an Ohio State grad. I know Albert a little bit. He's a great guy. Incredible insight. He talks to everybody in the league. So Albert Breer is going to do that for us. Then we're going to go to Neil Payne. He is a writer for 538.com. He wrote an incredibly interesting story a couple weeks ago that was titled, The Browns' Suckiness Defies Math and Reason. Really interesting looking back on the Browns. How all these things, the bad draft picks, the lack of a quarterback, the instability in coaching and front office, he looked at it numerically. He compared it to the rest of the league. It gives you a sense of of why this has gone wrong. Now, I know that's a step back as we're looking forward, but again, it's help laying the groundwork. Super interesting article, really interesting conversation with Neil. Then we're going to end with Melissa Jacobs. She used to work for ESPN. She used to work for Sports Illustrated. She now runs a website called The Football Girl. That's her Twitter Twitter handle. She is slightly obsessed with the Browns. She lives in California. She gives us a big picture outsider look of how, yes, the rest of the NFL is watching Cleveland football. Are the Browns still a punching bag? Or are people looking at them in a different way? Part of this is hard knocks related, but part of this is people being curious about the talent acquisition and what the Browns might be on the threshold of doing. So those are our four guests. I will drop in, in between here and there, my thoughts a little bit on this season. I'm writing a ton of things about the Browns this week at cleveland.com, so please go read that. That's how we get money. Follow me on Twitter at Doug Maurice. I haven't asked this for a, for, uh, a while. How about a review on iTunes? would be fantastic. We haven't had many recently. Um, an iTunes review for Takes by the Lake, if, if you give a good one, that moves us up in the rankings, gets more people interested. If you give a bad one, that tells me how to get better. So I'll take any of them. But if you would take some time, we get lots of people reviewing um, the podcast I'm part of with Ohio State, Buckeye Talk. Um, we got great reviews there. I'd like to get some more reviews, some constructive feedback. If you think I'm a gas bag, call me a gas bag, but try to do it nicely. If you think the great the, the guests are great and that I drag it down, well, the guests would like to hear that. So give me a review. It'll help. 
Um, we appreciate you guys listening. We're going to continue this all through football season. We'll be Browns heavy. Again, Jeff Passan from Yahoo Sports checked in last week. I highly encourage you to listen to that great, incredible perspective on the Indians from one of the best baseball writers in the country and a Solon native. So you guys want to listen to that. But right now, dig in. The 2018 Brown season is here, and this is your season preview on Takes by the Lake, starting now. All right, we're back on Takes by the Lake with Clayton Bram. He runs the Cleology Twitter account that is at underscore C-L-E-O-L-O-G-Y. It's the science of rooting for Cleveland sports teams, and Clayton is here as the optimistic voice of an 0-16 fan base that actually has legitimate reason to be very interested in this football season. So, Clayton, <laughs> first of all, welcome in. And just give give the listeners here on Takes by the Lake a little bit of background on who you are and uh, how you came about your Browns fandom. Sure. Well, thanks for having me on, Doug. I appreciate that. And, uh, yeah, um, I, I you know, I think as, as far as fandom goes, uh, just like a lot of a lot of you out there, I'm born, born and raised into this thing. I was born in uh, Akron, Ohio. Um, grew up in Hudson. Currently live in Tremont, and it's just you know you kind of live and breathe uh, with the Cleveland Browns. I think all of us are are homers to a certain extent. We're all trying to find ways to to say that we're gonna we're, we're gonna win every single game, and we're we're trying to analyze everything down to the to the fine points. Um, but uh, came up with the the Cleology account just as an outlet, just like a lot of people want need an outlet for sport. And uh, for me, that was it was a time when I was living in Portland, Oregon, and I needed to be connected to my my teams. And uh, came up with it with my buddy, a roommate, my roommate Drew. I uh, thought it was a pretty funny play on words with the land at the time was a big deal back in 2016, still is. But um, and the study of the land, so it's kind of. You know, kind of spitball, kind of kind of snowballed, I guess, if you will, from there, and uh, including some hype tapes and some some amateur takes on on Cleveland sports. But it's been a lot of fun, and uh, I'm excited to chat a little bit about the optimistic outlook for the Browns this year. All right, so Clayton, you do you do put out these fun uh, hype videos. What are you most hyped about about the Browns? Right? I mean, I know there is yeah. this general. I think uh, underlying optimism about an increased level of talent, some good sure. young players, but like, are there a couple guys? Is there, is it, is there somebody on the coaching staff? Is it a side of the ball? Like, what are you really most excited about? Yeah, I think uh, for me, um, I think a lot of seasons are predicated on on uh, what we can be as opposed to what we are now. Um, that's not, you know, that 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 isn't just the Browns. It, it seems to be the Browns year in year out. But um, for me, it's Todd Haley. I think Todd Haley brings something we haven't had in years past. It's a guy that has had tremendous success. We've seen that year in year out here in the AFC North. Um, and I think that he, he's a guy that's going to help change this culture. Um, I think on that in that same um, respect, guys like Jarvis Landry. Um, guys like Tyrod Taylor, these are, you know, you, you can see this thing turn around the moment we made those deals. Um, the, the type of optimism that those two bring, Tyrod a little bit quieter, but has that, you know, lead by example type of type of attitude. And then you've got Tyrod, or excuse me, you've got Jarvis, 
who immediately put out a similar type of hype tape. And I, I think, I don't think he was ready for the type of uh, response that he, he got to that with uh, Najoku and Hyde and those guys training down in Florida. I mean, he could, he probably could tell after that how, how excited this fan base was. And he's really taken it from there. And he's shown that, you know, he's, he's, we need to leave everything in the past. This is a brand new team. We've got about a 60% turnover as far as talent. And um, I think those, that, core group right there Haley Jarvis and Tyrod those are the guys I'm most excited to see lead this team into this season um and and you could probably pin and say this is the reason why it's not quite the same as years past so all right so so here's I I I'm very interested in in everybody I talk to about the Browns I ask this have you felt this before did you feel this with Brandon Weed and Trent Richardson? Did you feel this with Johnny Manziel? Have you felt yeah. this before? Or honestly, truly, in, you, in your heart, is this different? Do you feel, you know, because all fans are excited about their team at the start of the year. They hope for the best. They think the best yep. is going to happen. And Browns fans for 20 years have been let down. Is this sure. different, honestly? Or is it just the latest version of what you felt in the past? Yeah, that's, it's funny you mentioned that. I was chatting about this a little bit earlier today um, with a couple of guys from waiting from next year. And uh, I, I think truly it, it does feel different for me. Um, and I think the reason why is is the fact that year in, year out, like I was saying, we're going to we're going to overanalyze things. You know, the, uh, the offseason, it, it's it's too long for to give Browns fans to analyze exactly how, how things are going to go. So by, you know, the Thursday, Friday before week one, we're all sitting here saying, you know what, maybe eight and eight, you know, uh, nine and seven. And, and you know, we're, we're talking ourselves into that, like you mentioned, every single year. I think the difference that you're seeing here this this season and why it does feel different for a lot of people is the fact that the talent is truly there. And it's not just young talent. It's talent we brought in that are veterans. It's talent that we brought in um, on the coaching staff. It's it's just a bunch of, of, of players that you can look and, and kind of take take uh, you know take it to the bank that they're going to give you a, a certain level of play that you're used to. Um, you're going to get a certain level of, of coaching that you're used to. And uh, I also think a lot of people are, are happy that the play calling is now in the hands of someone that can best utilize the talent that we have on offense. Um, and, and, you know, it, it's obviously, you know, there's going to be, um, some hiccups. We've got a lot of players on defense, um, whether they're new to the team, new to the league, new to the position, switching back to a position, it, it's all over the place, but the talent is there. Uh, I think the hunger is there and, um, it, it is slightly different. Doug, I, I don't think that you can say that it's, it's quite the same as in years past, and, uh, and we've got that good feeling in our gut for once. So. All right, so now here comes the other side, Clayton. Here comes the negative sports writer guy thing. What are you worried about? What, what are you thinking maybe yeah. would trick them, trip them up if it doesn't go the way fans hope it goes? What are the problem areas that you're wondering about right now? Well, I think I've got to mention the left side of the offensive line. Okay. Um, and and I think that anytime you're headed into the to the season without truly knowing, you know, who your 
left tackle is for the first time in a, in a decade. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and you're not sure if you want to move your, your all pro caliber left guard to tackle, or you want to move, um, you know, your, your rookie, um, you know, uh, Jack of all trades, Austin Corbett to, to left tackle left guard center. You're not really sure where you want to put him. Um, you don't know if you want to play a undrafted free agent at left tackle, uh, Desmond Harrison. So it's, it's tough. And that's not a, that's not a spot you want to have question marks at. And I, and I'd be, um, remiss to say, if, you know, that, that, you know, that is definitely something that I'm worried about as far as, um, defense goes, already mentioned it. You've got Jabril moving back from a free safety position to his natural position at strong safety. You've got Demarius moving from corner with Green Bay to free, his natural position, where he was drafted out of Arizona State, free safety. Um, got Jamie Collins coming back from injury. You've got just a lot of moving parts, um, a lot of very talented moving parts, but a lot of moving parts. And so I think that, it, you know, combined with the all-line and, and the defense sort of figuring out what they want to be, um, you may see some bumps in the road early. Hopefully not, but if you do, I think that's probably the reason why. All right, Clayton, we'll drill down on this, and then I'll let you go. This is something I've written. I feel like everything that has happened to get the Browns to this point makes sense. It was a plan. It was reasonable. You said you can see things you haven't seen before. To me, this is this is a step up year. This is not. I know there's been uh, here and there. There are people um, who think the Browns will be on the edge of a playoff conversation. I saw Nick Wright from Fox Sports pick the Browns to make the playoffs. That makes me nervous. I think this is yeah. a step up year. I think next year is the year where there's an absolute expectation to be competing for the playoffs. I don't think yep. that's now. So. I don't want Browns fans coming off an 0 16 year to like, you know, be mad if they're not nine and seven. Where where is your range? Like, what are you looking for? How much of what you're looking for is tied to their record? And 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 you know, what are you sort of hoping? What are you sort of thinking? Hoping legitimately they could do this season? And is there a way that maybe, you know, they could maybe win that not that many games? but still make you feel good because you feel like it's a year that's getting them somewhere? Or are you thinking to yourself, you know what? If they don't win at least six or seven, I'm going to have major questions. Where are you on record and progress? Sure. Yeah, I think um, I think a lot of us as fans are to the point where we want to see some some actual results as far as, as victories. And um, and that's, you know what, that that's totally fine. I can uh, completely understand that. I'm in the same boat. Um, however, I'm not as, you know, I'm not as optimistic as far as pl- playoff bursts as, as some might be. Um, do I think our ceiling is is playoff caliber? Um, yeah, and I actually think that's probably one of the reasons that it's, you know, it, it, there is a lot of optimism around the Browns is the fact that their ceiling is so high. However, that's a ceiling. Um, teams don't often reach their ceiling for a, a myriad of reasons, and so realistically for me um i i do think that there is a way for this team to improve obviously from 0 and 16 uh, with just a few wins with maybe four five six wins um i think that you could probably you know if you're competitive every week 
Um, if you're in every game, you end up, you start to pull some of those games out. Maybe you steal one or two from a team you didn't think you were going to steal one from, especially the Pittsburgh Steelers. Uh, that would be enormous. Um, you know, th- these are things that could probably help fans, um, you know, keep keep the the positive vibes around, um, even without that seven, eight, nine wins that a lot of people are looking for. For me, if I had to provide a number for what I feel like you know, what, what we, where we can be realistically. Um, I'm, I'm personally in that six to seven win range. Okay. Um, I, I think I might be and, and correct me if I'm, I'm wrong. I might be slightly more optimistic than you, Doug. Um, but I think we're in the same boat where we say it's maybe not quite the year where you're, you're hoping and, and wishing and, and almost demanding that playoff birth. Um, but I think that you're taking strides towards that, that mark. Um, and if things break right, sure. Um, could you sneak in? Absolutely. Um, but I wouldn't expect us to be just, you know, uh, playing Baker Mayfield at the end of the year because we've locked up a, a, a divisional berth. I don't think you can realistically put that on the Browns this year. If it happens, great. If not, um, you know, just look for the positives. Look for some victories for sure. And uh, and look for this team to be competitive every single week, and I think that that's that's a win for us in 2018. Clayton, I hope people find you at underscore c l e o l o g y. Check out the hype videos. There is reason. There is reason for hype around an zero and sixteen team. Just don't overhype yourselves, people, because yeah. the climb from zero and sixteen is real. Um, and there are many ways to evaluate progress and feel good about the future without them getting to 8-8 eight and eight this year. So, Clayton, thanks for your time. Um, good luck uh, with the Twitter account this season, and uh, hopefully we can check in down the line sometime. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Doug. Really appreciate it, and uh, go Browns. All right, we're going to get ready for Albert Breer on Takes by the Lake. I want to say this. One of my Browns' opinions going into the season, I'm not 100% sure about Greg Williams. Uh, Hugh Jackson has gotten a lot of flack, deservedly so, a lot from me. Um, I'm very curious to see how Greg Williams uses this defense. We've talked about this with previous guests. Um, Will he blitz too much? Will he let uh, his front four get after the passer? Will he play the linebackers he has the right way? Um, Will he will he get into nickel enough? Uh, I think there's been encouraging signs in the preseason, but I think I think there is there are reasons to to wonder about Greg Williams. People get very excited when you say put your testicles in the sea gap. I get that. Um, people were very excited about Todd Haley and Greg Williams showing their personalities uh, on Hard Knocks. That's great. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't know. Does that matter? Does that, I, I, that doesn't matter to me. Um, you know, you, you got to get guys to play for you, but, but I think, I think Greg Williams, we can get caught up in the cult of personality a little bit with Greg Williams. Um, and, and you should be at times fairly questioning, um, the way he deploys this defense. So I'm assuming with Miles Garrett and Emmanuel Ogba, um, that, that they will let them go. They didn't play all that many snaps together last year. I think that is a fundamental change for this team. Garrett and Ogbach together on the field. We only saw it for about four games last year. 
if they get 16 games of that or close to it, 14, 15 games of that, that is such a huge difference. Um, but, I, but I'm still curious about how Greg Williams goes about this. So that's one thing I'm thinking about for this season. Let's dig in now with Albert Breer from Sports Illustrated. Again, one of the best um, NFL writers around. And, uh, and he broke down the Browns in a national context, continuing our season preview on Takes by the Lake. So happy to be joined by Albert Breer here on Takes by the Lake, one of the best guys covering the NFL anywhere. Um, Albert, thanks so much for your time, man. You got it, Doug. Talent level of the Browns roster, where is it? Like, is, is, this, a, is this a roster that can compete from a talent level in the middle of the pack in the NFL, or are there still multiple places where they're a step short in your mind? See, that, that last part there, Doug, is what's so interesting about them. Is I don't know they really have glaring holes. Now, I mean, you can you, know, you can argue about whether the left tackle position is fixed and whether or not Joel Batonio will be able to move out there, the rookie Harrison they drafted. Um, but you look elsewhere, I mean, they, they seem to be deep at quarterback. They seem to be deep at running back. They've now got like legitimate options at receiver. Um, they've got a first-round pick at tight end on defense. They're very deep at linebacker. They've got, I'd say, at least three front-end defensive linemen in Ogba, um, Garrett, and Ogunjobi. And then on the back end, you know, they draft Enzo Ward with the fourth pick, and they've got another first-round pick in Jabril Peppers playing safety. And so, you know, I, I don't think they're top of the league by any means from a talent standpoint. But, uh, you know, for, for a team that went 0-16, um, there really seems to be almost a glaring lack of holes there, you know, if that's a – if that's – if that makes sense. There's just not, there's not this, this one area where you look and say, that's a huge problem spot. So then I guess the, the, the next jump then is how many potentially elite guys do they have? How many potentially right. all pro caliber game changing guys do they have? Obviously Miles Garrett's on that list. Yeah. Is there, who else potentially falls in there to you that can sure. help make this team great? I'd start with, I'd start with Garrett. Um, and I think, you know, what you want to look at is the year two jump that a lot of um, a lot of these you know, pass rushing hybrids have had in the NFL. Um, I believe Khalil Mack went to 15 sacks his second year. I think Von Miller went to 18 and a half sacks his second year. And so, you know, a, a lot of times with the with the very elite pass rushing prospects, we've seen a big jump year one over year year two over year one. And so, I think Garrett's going to make that jump this year. At least he showed signs of it in the preseason. Um, you know, and then I, I think Ward would be another one that they look at as a guy okay. who's going to be a cornerstone going forward. Um, Josh Gordon, obviously, there's a huge question about whether or not he can walk the straight and narrow for more than a few weeks at a time. But if he can, he's in that category. You know, and then you know Baker Mayfield, I think without question, you don't draft him number one if you don't think he's going to be in that group. And so, you know, I think if they're going to get where where they want to be, um, you know, two three years down the line. I think it's gonna it's gonna be around those players, around Ward, around Garrett, around Gordon, around Baker Mayfield. We have talked about this with a lot of people, and, and guys like you have a much better understanding of this than I do. But the idea of this window on the the quarterback, the rookie contract for Baker yep. Mayfield, um, it, does this window for them to be a playoff team? Does it hit pretty quickly? Because Say everybody assumes that whatever happens this year, that Baker Mayfield's the starter week one next year. Yep. Is that when you know Carson Wentz went to you know went to a Super Bowl in the second year? Jared Goff is in year three, and people think the Rams are really good. Is that window to be a legitimate 
high-level playoff contender going to get here pretty quick if it works in Cleveland? It's a gigantic advantage. Um, and I think you know the, the first team that you want to look at that really took advantage of that was Seattle. Okay. Um, Russell Wilson was making almost nothing because he was a third-round pick, you know. And so they had – and it wasn't just Russell. They had a lot of other guys that were on rookie contracts, Richard Sherman, Earl Thomas. Uh, Cam Chancellor got paid a little earlier than the others, Bobby Wagner. And, and what that allowed them to do, it not only allowed them to go and bring in guys from the outside that became uh, big-time pieces for them, and Cliff Averill and, and Michael Bennett, um, it also it also created a situation where they had a margin for error, yeah. where they could strike out on guys. I mean, they struck out on Percy Harvin, and they barely felt that, <laughs> you know. So uh, Jimmy Graham wasn't what they thought he'd be. It really didn't have an enormous effect on them in the, in the way they built their roster. And so, um, you know, I think the big advantage that you have is really that you know you you can you can add so much in other places, and you know you've got this short window, and so. I mean, certainly I think that the Eagles are a good example. of it. They've been really aggressive the last two years. The Rams bringing in Sue and Tlaib and Peters and Cooks, you know, they're another example of it. And I think the Bears are a good example of it now, too, is that now they're going into year two with Mitch Trubisky, and what are they doing? You know, now they're loading up, and they go and they bring in Khalil Mack and, and Allen Robinson, and, and they've, you know, kind of sent this message to their locker room, we feel like we're ready to win now. And so... It's interesting, Doug, because you know you look at it, you say you don't want to overspend, and it is absolutely a bet on the quarterback. Like what Chicago's doing right now is a bet on Mitch Trubisky developing really fast. Uh, but the but the flip side of that is, you know, if you got it wrong on the quarterback, then you're all getting fired anyway. Right. So so one way or another, it makes sense to maximize that window. Just you personally, um, we this rookie quarterback, you know, draft class was so interesting. We know yep. Sam Darnold's going to start for the Jets week one. Um, Rosen's going to wait a little bit. Allen's going to wait a little bit. Baker's going to wait a little bit. Do you think there's a chance that the Browns will look back and 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 even if Baker's good, that they will have regret? That, do you think there's a chance that one of these other guys, whether it's, I guess, Darnold is specifically or yeah. maybe even Rosen or Allen, hits in a way that people will look back and say, man, the Browns picked the wrong guy? Or do you think in the end they're just going to be really happy with Baker Mayfield? Like a, holy, like a Hakeem Olajuwon, Michael Jordan type thing is what you're saying? Because no one says, I mean, everyone says, oh, yeah. you know, Sam Bowie, obviously a huge mistake, but it's not like the Rockets walk around saying, man, I can't believe we only got Hakeem Olajuwon who got us two titles right. and it was a legend, you know? Right, right. Yeah, I, I, like I, I think there's certainly a chance to that. Like, and I think the guy that everybody should walk, should keep an eye on right now is Sam Darnold. I'd actually be interested to hear what you uh, what you think because you were able to watch Sam and Baker live last year. You know, I, I just I base it on what I'm hearing out of the teams and you know the progress that I think these guys are making. And um, the Jets really from the jump have been you know over the moon with what they've gotten. And, and I think what they've told us in their actions you know reflects that is. You know, they gave them first-team reps in the spring. Um, they were they went into the summer very open. We're going to give them a chance to win the starting job. And remember, this isn't in Buffalo or Cleveland or Arizona or Baltimore. Right. This is like you're going to be you're like we're we're comfortable with the idea that you could be competing for a starting job in New York City under that spotlight. Um, and you know, he's sort of kind of continued with the incremental progress that you need to have. And I think the big thing that the Jets see in in, in Darnold is. He's uniquely qualified to handle playing as a rookie quarterback um, and that he showed the things that you need when he was in college. One, he, he took a lot of hits last year at USC playing behind a young line, so he's got that. You know a rookie quarterback's going to need to do that. And two, 
he showed last year that he can compartmentalize mistakes. Now, of course, you know, he's going to have to fix those mistakes eventually. But last year at SC with the turnovers, he showed I can compartmentalize mistakes. I can put them behind me and I can move on to the next play, the next game, whatever it is. And so I think Darnold, you know, has the talent, but he's also got the makeup. And, and I think the makeup is such an important piece of it, that, that, that thing that's really hard for NFL teams to get to, to figure out which, what, what each guy's made of. Um, I think that's why most teams had Darnold as number one quarterback going back to March and April. And if I'm a Browns fan, if there's one guy that I'm nervous about that's going to make me regret taking Baker, and I don't necessarily think they're going to regret taking Baker, but if there was one guy I'd be nervous about, it'd be Darnold. Yeah, I mean, and I was uh, I was a Baker guy from the get-go. The, the guy that I was nervous about was Josh Allen winding up here. But, you know, I'm not an expert on Sam Darnold, but having covered USC and Ohio State in the Cotton Bowl – and talking to a bunch of people on USC about Sam Darnold, um, that he's just like a beach guy, like a very laid-back guy. But it seemed like, obviously, all teammates are going to say good things about their quarterback. But I just yeah. felt like they meant it. I felt like he he just had yeah. something that he did instill confidence in his team. And you could just see sort of the way he interacted with them when like they weren't talking to the media. I did think he sort of had that thing. And then I just liked... I liked his athleticism. I liked him in and out of the pocket. I thought the turnovers were not a big deal. He's a guy trying to make plays. Like, and the fact that he's significantly younger than Baker, it just felt yeah. like there's maybe more upside there. But I'm, you know, I think well, Baker's great. The upside thing is too, Doug. Like what I'd add there, like I, I, one thing that I think is fascinating about Sam is that he's not classically trained. Right. Um, you know, he he was a linebacker his sophomore year in high school. He didn't have the personal coach from the time he was six like a lot of these kids do. And, you know, like, I feel like everybody grows up with there, – there, there are kids who just can athletically figure it out. It doesn't matter what game you put them in. You know what I mean? Like, yep. it doesn't matter if they're playing hockey or basketball or baseball. Like, whatever you put them in, they'll just go out there and they'll figure it out. And, you know, Sam is – I think Sam's one of those kids, a great high school basketball player. And I think that there was an element the last two years at SC because he wasn't classically trained and because they did some things unconventionally at USC – um, you know, I think that he was sort of figure, able to sort of figure out playing quarterback at that level on the fly, which I think makes what he was able to accomplish even more impressive and would lead you to believe at least that there's still a lot of room to grow there. And the one thing is, I mean, I, I, I liked Darnold's personality. I think it's possible, given what Cleveland has been through, yeah. that maybe I get that John Dorsey wanted a guy, a plant the flag and midfield kind of guy, which Baker yeah. is more that than Darnold, it seems. And that's great if they fell in love with Baker and his sort of how outwardly he acts that way. It doesn't seem like Darnold's that as much, but it seems like Darnold, as you said, he's handling everything. I don't know that anybody doubted whether he could handle it. Yeah, um, yeah. and I think Baker, I mean, look, I think Baker is going to be, I don't want to come off like I don't like Baker. I mean, I, right. I talked to some quarterbacks coaches who said he's the most accurate quarterback they've ever evaluated coming out of college. Um, he's got real talent. I mean, I know it's an underdog story, but the way NFL teams viewed him, like he's got a chance to be like Drew Brees was, you know, a guy who's undersized, but has such good instincts and feel, um, knows how to get vision, even though he's, you know, playing behind linemen who are six inches taller than him. Uh, yep. And just, has a knack for, for playing the game and a competitiveness about him that makes him special and in a, in a different way than Darnold is. You're clearly a guy who has an understanding of, of someone like John Dorsey, where this team is. There's such a battle in Cleveland, and I, I don't 
I don't really want to get into it. You know, the people who think Sashi Brown destroyed this franchise, the people who think Sashi Brown set this franchise up for success. John Dorsey's here now. He's executing this now. The way he's gone about it so far and, and just what he's done in the league previously, is there a belief in this league that John Dorsey is a guy that can do what needs to be done to get to finish this in Cleveland, to get the last couple yeah. pieces to get them over the top. We know there's still cap space out there. We know that if they're going to be a playoff team, they still need to figure out some spots. Is John Dorsey the guy to do it? Well, let's go back to, to, to what went wrong in Kansas City. Um, you know, I, I think in Kansas City, that one of the main problems was that he would freelance a little bit. And you know, he would he'd make decisions that maybe weren't based on the consensus that were based on his own resolve. And you can argue whether or not he got some of those right. You know, they paid a couple of the offensive linemen, Eric Fisher, uh, most notably early, and when when some other people in the building felt like they, you know, they, they should have waited on those guys, and it may have cost them as far as how much they wind up having to pay Justin Houston and Eric Berry. Um, so, you know, the, the reason why I'm, I'm I'm explaining that is because I think a big piece of who he is is he's so grounded in what he believes. You know, and I think one thing that he has in Cleveland that he didn't have to the same degree in Kansas City as a bunch of guys who are like-minded around him and Elliot Wolf and Alonzo Highsmith and you know I know they brought in Scott McLuhan in the spring to work with him too um, and so I think he really gives them a, 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 a really legitimate chance they've got a very um, they've got a very specific vision for what they want in players you know height weight speed that's important to them um, I think there's a certain type of guy that they're looking for um, Sashi's problem was never accumulating assets. Sashi's problem was the team he put together. Sashi's problem was picking players and whether the players fit together and the investment that the coaching staff had in the players. I don't think those things are going to be a problem with Dorsey. And so, uh, and Sashi did a terrific job as far as building up the assets. I just think that, you know, you look at what Dorsey wants to do and you can see the type of player he's drafting in Denzel Ward, in Baker Mayfield, in Austin Barrett, in Nick Chubb, going all the way down to Jannard Avery. Yep. There's a type of player that he's drafting. And if you watch these guys play or you know what their reputation was coming out of college, it's very, very clear. And I think that that's something the Browns haven't had in a while. And so I think that you know the marriage of all of those assets that they had to spend and a very clear vision for what they want to be, um, at least, you know, I think gives you the idea that there could be a pretty high ceiling on how far John Dorsey can take the Browns. So, Albert, when you when you cover teams and you've been around the league, can can you see a team coming? Do you feel like you have a good sense of like I don't know whether you saw it with the Eagles or whether yeah. pe- you saw it with the Seahawks before, like you mentioned? Yeah. And when you talk to people around the league, can, can you see it coming? Can the league see it coming? And then the second yeah. part of that is. Do people maybe think the Browns are coming? Yeah, I, I think um, you know the biggest questions I think the Browns have is like, what's the infrastructure going to look like in a year? You know, because so much in the NFL is is based on the coach and the quarterback. And uh, I mean, look, you know, you mentioned Seattle. Seattle was a team that I think some team, some some you like in early 2012, before anybody knew what they would become. Like you hard, you started to talk talk to to people who would. You know, say, like, look at Seattle's roster. They're really building something there. So I think, you know, you can see, like, like, people can see that, especially the people who know what they're talking about. So much of where teams can go, though, revolves in the NFL around who's the coach and who's the quarterback. 
And so, you know, a year from now, is Baker Mayfield going to be the starting quarterback? Is Hugh Jackson going to be the coach? I think a lot of the optimism um, that you that, that, that there would be around the Browns right now is predicated on that. Is what kind of job does Hugh do with Todd Haley and Greg Williams as his coordinators? And, and what do we know about Baker Mayfield a, na- a year from now that we don't know right now today? And so until you can answer those questions, I think it's t- kind of difficult. But and what other teams I think would tell you about the Browns, you know, and, and based on what I've heard other teams say about the Browns, um, they're getting stronger at the lines of scrimmage, which is, which is important. They've invested in the lines of scrimmage, which is important. And they're starting to do a decent job of building out from there. And so uh, with the caveat that everything is, you know, a lot's going to boil down to who the coach is and who the quarterback is and where those guys are at in a year, I do think that there's reason for optimism. I think other teams in the league think there's reason for optimism in Cleveland, too. So um, I, I don't know, Albert. It's 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 so strange um, to think about it this way that that Cleveland could be in this position, but it, it sounds like in the end, like as final sort of like pieces of advice to Browns fans, it, it, this this is a little different. This is maybe different than where they've been because we know people thought. People thought Trent Richardson and Brandon Whedon, maybe that was going to be the start of something. Or people thought Justin Gilbert and Johnny Manziel might be the start of something. There have obviously been the, the hiccups. <laughs> is this different? Is this different? Does it? Does are there other are there parts to the structure to the rest of the roster that that it's not just about Baker Mayfield and Miles Garrett? Maybe there are more things in place than than times in the past. I think so. I mean, I, I think a lot of it. I mean, look, I think a lot of it boils down to the organization being in lockstep. One of the one of the things that really tears teams apart is when, you know, you've got a bunch of competing agendas out there. And, you know, I, I think right now the, the, the coaches have about six months or a little less than that, now four months, I guess, to, to, to align themselves with, 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 with John Dorsey and align themselves with where John Dorsey's going. Um, and that's the biggest piece of it, I think, right now is – um, that you know, John Dorsey either is going to see the coaching staff as, as presently constituted as uh, lining up with what he's what, what he wants to do, or he's going to be looking for someone new. And so, I think that piece of it's a huge part of it. And so, that's sort of the unknown. I think what's different about it again is 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 just the strength in the lines of scrimmage. And okay. part of this was the investment that I think Sashi made. Um, you know, and, and, and obviously Miles Garrett and Kevin Zeitler and J.C. Treader and guys like that. It looks like they've got real strengths at the line, real strength at the line of scrimmage, um, and that's gonna that's an important important thing. I mean, I would argue if you look at the Eagles, that was one of the biggest reasons why they were so sturdy when they went through the injuries last year, and they lost a lot of guys. They lost Carson Wentz. They lost uh, Jordan Hicks, their middle linebacker. They lost Chris Maragos, their special teams captain. They lost Jason Peters, their left tackle. But they were deep on the lines of scrimmage. And generally, teams that are deep on the lines of scrimmage are built to last. Um, Dallas is another example of a team that has sort of ebbed and flowed with this offensive line. When they've had injuries up there, they've struggled. But when they've been when they've been together there, I mean, they've kicked ass. 2014-2016, they were yeah. very difficult to beat. They've got better on the defensive line, too. And so that would be the main thing, I, I, I think, with the Browns, if you want to look past where just the coach and the quarterback are and some of the surface stuff, just look at how they built up the lines of scrimmage. I think the fact that they're getting a lot better in the front seven of the defense and they've invested a lot in the offensive line matters. Obviously, they got to figure left tackle out. 
but I think if they can get that figured out to an adequate degree where, you know, maybe they've got, you know, top 10, top 15 production out of that position, I think they're really, really good shape to compete week to week. Last one, Albert, and this is, again, context you can help provide. It seems like the other three teams in the AFC North, they have some older key pieces. Looking ahead, is it possible there's going to be an opening there for the Browns that that maybe the Ravens, Bengals, and Steelers are going to start heading down a little bit? Or do we have to make the assumption that the Steelers, with their stability and the structures they have in place, the Steelers are always going to be good and the Browns are going to have to fight past them or is there maybe an opening coming for Cleveland? I wouldn't I wouldn't forecast any sort of massive drop off of the Steelers. Now eventually they're going to have to take care of replacing Ben Roethlisberger and that's going to be I don't need to tell you pivotal, right? Yep. Like to, to where they go from there, but I mean they won before Ben and I think it's reasonable to think they'll win after Ben too. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think Baltimore and, and, and Cincinnati are sort of moving pieces right now where there would be an opening for Cleveland to move up in the hierarchy. Um, Baltimore has drafted 30 players over the last three years, and the makeup of the guys who are left on the roster is going to determine where they go. We don't know who their quarterback is going to be next year. We don't know necessarily who their coach is going to be next year. They're going to have a new general manager and Eric DaCosta next year. There are a lot of moving parts in Baltimore. They've been one of the more stable franchises in the league. And then Cincinnati, I mean, they were on the doorstep of, of walking away from Marvin Lewis last year. Um, I think the biggest difference that you see um, in Cincinnati, the, the group that went to the playoffs five years in a row and the group they've been the last two years, is their offensive line fell apart. Yeah. They lost Seidler to the Browns. They lost Andrew Whitworth to the Rams. And a lot of people wanted to assign all the blame for this to A.J. Green and Andy Dalton. I think it was more about the offensive line, you know, the losses they felt there, and then the, the, the misses on draft picks and Jake Fisher and Cedric Abui. And so, you know, I think the Bengals can get back to where they were a couple of years ago. So much of that's going to depend on Cordy Glenn at left tackle and Billy Price at center. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, I think there's certainly moving pieces with Cincinnati and Baltimore where it's not impossible to conjure up a scenario where, you know, we get to Christmas Day and maybe you're looking up and Cleveland's right there with those two. Albert Breer, love your work. Thanks for your time, man. Um, I'm sure we'll talk down the line and it's going to be, I keep saying, I don't know what's going to happen with the Browns, but I think they're interesting. I mean, they're, yeah. they're, they're interesting and that's something. I think, you know what, you know what's, you know what's, you know what's really interesting, I think, for everybody who's listening out there, you're, all your, all, you know, all the, all the people in Cleveland is that either they're going to be good or you're going to see Baker Mayfield, right? Yep. <laughs> Like yep. this, I think it's going to be one or two conclusions. Either they're going to be good, or you're going to get to November or December, and then you know the training wheels are going to have to come off, and the curtain's going to have to come up on Baker Mayfield. So one way or the other, I think you're, there's going to be meaningful football played in Cleveland in November and December. It's just sort of which way you know which way they go. But one way or another, they'll be interesting. I think till the end of the year. And then the thing too is, and I'm and I'm not trying to hammer this point because people know where I stand on Hugh Jackson, but either. They're going to be much better, and it's like, okay, you know, Hugh didn't have enough talent before, or it's going to be like, he's not the guy, and then maybe their Sean McVay is out there, you know, right? That maybe that's, that one way or the other, you're going to get a picture um, off this season that either the future's here, or the the future's not here, and and some things need to change, but I I think either way, Browns fans have something to look forward to. And And I think the, you know, one thing to hang your hat on right now is I, I do think, you know, I do think John Dorsey's uh, really good at building a roster. I mean, I think what he did in 
Kansas City speaks for itself. His you know his pedigree in Green Bay, um, all those years of work, and, and he's. I mean, if you want to look at other guys that have come out of that Green Bay organization, um, you know Reggie McKenzie. I think pretty did a pretty decent job, even though John Gruden may disagree with that. John Schneider in Seattle. Uh, Scott McLuhan, um, the job that he did building the Seahawks, helping build the Seahawks and the Niners and the uh, and the Redskins. Like you look and you look around and you see some really good, um, really good team builders that came out of that Ron Wolf system. And so I think not only having John Dorsey, but then also having a couple of guys that are from that tree and Reggie and uh, and, and Alonzo Highsmith and, and Elliot Wolf seems at least on that side they're in good shape and. Um, there could be worse people deciding on what you're going to do with the head coaching position going forward. Albert Breer, good luck this season, man. Thanks for your time. All right, thanks, Doug. All right, thanks to Albert. Next up, Neil Payne from 538. Uh, again, just a super interesting website that deals with uh, sports from an analytics perspective. He broke it down. He broke down this history that you know in your heart um, he helped explain it for your head. So I loved this conversation with Neil Payne. This one's a little longer, um, but I think it's worth your time. It's another reset, um, but it's a smart reset. It's not the same old reset, the same old the brown stink um, kind of stuff that you, you you get sometimes. So I really appreciated Neil Payne, and, and I want to throw in this. Another thought for the season from Doug. I wrote this. People gave me some flack, and that's that's I probably deserved it. I said the Browns had the best backup quarterback in the NFL. Now, there are backups around the league that stink. <laughs> stink. There are so many potential playoff teams who are a quarterback injury away from complete oblivion. Now, Nick Foles with the Eagles, who led them to the Super Bowl last year when Carson Wentz was was hurt, is probably the best one, but he looked terrible against the Browns, so I downgraded him. Teddy Bridgewater, the Saints traded for him. He's now Drew Brees' backup in New Orleans. He's good. But I think I think the Browns, those are the best three to me. Foles, Bridgewater, and Bridgewater's coming off a very major injury. Anybody could have had him on the cheap, and, and nobody wanted him. After a good preseason, people wanted him. But whether it's, it's Baker Mayfield starting the year as the backup, or if they switch and Tyrod Taylor, who has a winning record as a starter and made the playoffs last year, if he's your backup, that's how set you are. Think about... If you are a Browns fan, you are not desperately crossing your fingers to avoid a quarterback injury. Nobody wants injuries, but the part of the game, if it happens at quarterback, there are about 20 to 25 to 28 teams that are just absolutely screwed if their starting quarterback gets hurt. And the Browns are not one of them. Now, the Browns don't have one of the 10, 12, 15 best starters in the league. So that's what you want to get to, obviously. Baker Mayfield has to be a top 10 quarterback for this to work. But in the meantime, you have legitimate options, multiple options in a city where they haven't had one option. And in a league where almost no one has two options, the Browns have two. Think about that going into this season and get ready for Neil Payne from 538. Now joined on Takes by the Lake by Neil Payne, a sports writer and editor at 538 dot com just an absolutely fascinating browns article recently with perhaps the greatest browns headline i have ever read the browns suckiness defies math and reason that alone neil warrants 
an hour-long podcast. Where did you come up with the headline? Well, uh, you know, uh, as you probably know, as a fellow journalist, uh, oftentimes we don't write our own headlines. Yes. Uh, and what we do at 538, that can actually be a double-edged sword sometimes. Uh, and I'm sure all of us have kind of uh, had that work for us or against us. I think in this case it worked for us. We have this headlines channel on our uh, – we have a Slack uh, set up for the office. And so we sort of just all bounce ideas off each other and kind of workshop uh, headlines. And so that one, I think we wanted to kind of work suckiness in there just because – because uh, it, it was the, the adjective that described the Browns' uh, recent seasons the most, I think. Uh, and I don't have to tell you that yes. or your listeners. Um, it's, it's fascinating. I'm curious, like, how did this come about? You guys at 538, and I'm sure most people are familiar with the work at 538. It just examines things in a very different way than a lot of traditional sports writing, digs in deep with numbers, really analyzes situations. How did this story even come about that the brown suckiness was something worth digging into? Well, we try to be, yeah, we try to be data-driven. That's sort of our our, uh, guiding uh, thought process when we do stories. And for me, uh, I just became really obsessed, I think, all off-season long and really even going back to the end of last year when, when the Browns unfortunately went 0-16. Uh, on the heels of that 1-15 season, I just was hoping for a long time to have uh, the, the uh, free time almost to kind of dig into it uh, and, and start to dissect the reasons why they've been so bad. But because to me, it really does. Like, like you said, the headline says it defies math and reason. And it just was so different and so much of an outlier than um, even the worst teams in other sports. Uh, and believe me, I'm not trying to pile onto the Browns because I really have become sort of a Browns fan in the process of all this. Just to sort of look at the ways in which uh, things might turn around because they have turned around for other teams that were nowhere near as bad. And so you have to think that eventually, if given enough time, things will turn around. But the the real central number in my story that, that I think made it possible to kind of do this deep dive was we have this system called ELO ratings at 538. It's our sort of power rating of NFL teams. Uh, and it's on the scale where a, a 1500 team is average and the best teams tend to be in the 1700s maybe up around 1800 uh, i think the um, the eagles ended last season in the 1700s the patriots are always up there uh and for, uh, if you're an expansion team just starting out you're a 1300 team we sort of assign you that value because it corresponds to how well teams that have entered the league tend to do in their first year well for the browns this is their 20th year since sort of restarting the franchise and they will start this season as about a 1300 which is the number for an expansion team no other expansion team in modern history has sort of gone back down to that original level of uh when they first came into the league the way the browns have uh over the past 20 years and so for me that was sort of the the overarching number that encapsulated all of the twists and turns that have happened to this franchise uh since they restarted it um uh back in 1999 and that is an interesting way to think about it i know and you cite um terry pluto our sports writer from the plain dealer in this story and and some of the 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 books that that he's written um over the years and the idea that the browns were kind of behind the eight ball 
when they came back as an expansion franchise, they maybe didn't have some of the things in place that other uh, expansion franchises did. I know you're a numbers guy, right? But but as you Mm -hmm. assess this, the Browns again, this this whole thing of like you know three and thirteen, four and twelve, five and eleven, six and ten, living in that world for two decades. The idea of like sort of tearing it back down to expansion level that that obviously they were awful last year, but like they were sort of awful on purpose to some degree. Like, does that make sense? Or is it like, why would anybody ever want to drop down to an expansion level team? Or given what had happened to them, was that a strategy? Yeah, well, you know, it, it, uh, one of the other things that I looked at in the story was just the sheer amount of turnover yep. uh, at pretty much every possible front office coaching, player-wise, quarterback-wise, obviously, uh, position in the entire franchise. So like from top to bottom, they've just had this run of just chaos I, I coined this thing chaos points it's this um fascinating it's this acronym uh that that uh, that i tried to use to measure the total uh just the toll that it takes on a team to uh change at so many important positions uh, chaos standing for cumulative high activity organizational strife love it uh, god <laughs> i love the that acronym and the browns are of course leading the league in that and so you talk about a strategy to get to that point uh and certainly that's i think what sashi brown uh and the previous regime were intentionally doing they were trying to kind of bottom out to to uh try to get better draft picks it was all about accumulating draft capital and then eventually turning that into talent and so to some extent yeah the the one and, and 31 stretch over two seasons was deliberate in that sense, but also the Browns just have had this history of changing things after giving them very little time to even gauge whether they're working or not, and that includes all of the, the slots in the organization that we just talked about, the coach, the QB, uh, the, the general manager, all of these uh, important positions that uh, – that alone explains, I think, a good amount of the Browns' struggles since coming back, and especially you know, in recent years, is just that they haven't given anything enough of a chance to even figure out whether it is the right direction to go as a right. franchise. And, and there's, I found that when a team makes any one of those individual important changes at a, uh, a crucial uh, position or, you know, a role in the organization, uh, a team does worse the next year, uh, even after controlling for how good they were already, because teams that tend to make big changes are ones that are, are bad. But we found that even after you control for how bad they originally were, Teams that make those kinds of changes, especially repeatedly so, end up doing worse than you would expect. So it, it does take a toll on a team to have you know such chaos and, and such instability. Uh, whereas continuity, on the other side, you know obviously teams that are doing well will continue to keep the same people. But there is some benefit to continuity even above and beyond uh, the types of teams that tend to keep uh, people at coach or QB or what have you. I mean, it's interesting. The idea that, you know, stability is better than instability is not a unique idea, but for you to delve into it to this degree and put some numbers behind it, I'm looking at the chaos points chart you made. The Browns have 237 points, and that's based on your formula. They have, they've had 16 quarterbacks, seven coaches, eight GMs, two owners since 2000. 
Pittsburgh, no surprise, the team that the, the, the Browns are constantly compared to, they have the fewest chaos points with 32. They have had two quarterbacks and one coach, one GM, one owner. You compare that to 16 quarterbacks, seven coaches, eight GMs. It is unbelievable. And to just look at this chart for Browns fans, you have to go read this story. It's putting numbers behind what you feel in your heart. You know they get fired all the time here, but it helps explain it. You really broke this down into three different areas, and I think all of them are fascinating. I wanted to get to all of them. We just talked about the instability. The quarterback position. We know, obviously, and, and the instability at quarterback is part of that, but is part of what we talked about with your chaos uh, points. But just the idea, it just feels like if they could have stumbled into somebody, right? The Seahawks got Russell Wilson in the third round. Tom Brady came in the sixth round. The Saints traded for Drew Brees after the Chargers didn't want him anymore. Like, there are some teams that have a great plan to get a quarterback, but there are plenty of t- Tony Romo in Dallas was a was an right. undrafted guy. There are plenty of teams that sort of accidentally land on a quarterback. H- how odd is it to you? And again, you can talk about this numerically with what you did with the quarterbacks, but just the idea that they've never done that. They haven't ever even mistakenly accidentally found a quarterback. Yeah, and I think that that is uh, one of the ways in which the Browns have been unlucky uh, to get to the place that they're currently at, this 1,300 ELO restart of the franchise and what have you. Uh, but at the same time, you uh, you know, if luck is the residue of design, and I think to a certain extent that it is for NFL teams, that putting guys in positions to succeed with quality receivers, with a quality running game, with, with a defense that can kind of get them the ball back, with a great coaching staff. I mean, these are sort of the ways in which a quarterback can be put into a position to actually you know, play up to their potential. And I think seldom have the Browns ever given uh, guys a chance to actually perform to that level. I mean, their best quarterback, according to yards above replacement uh, since 1999, since coming back, uh, was Derek Anderson. And he's sort of thought of fondly for this, the last winning season that the Browns had. They didn't even make the playoffs that year. But that really speaks to uh, just the the abysmal level of, of play that if Derek Anderson is your standard bearer uh, over the years, uh, it, it all of the things that they've tried to do have failed. Uh, and so you would think eventually, like you said, you would hit on somebody who could be an effective quarterback just by chance alone. And I, I totally agree with that. And I think it, that is a way in which the Browns haven't gotten uh, lucky with their with their drafting or their otherwise player acquisition. But at the same time, uh, I'm, I'm sure that one of the guys that they had that flamed out, and we've all seen that jersey that has sure. the, the long line of, of of starters on it that keep getting crossed out. One of those guys, if he had been put in a better situation, could have probably, obviously he wouldn't have been the answer, he wouldn't have been the savior of the franchise, but could have outperformed a Derek Anderson or at least become that level of QB, uh, I think, if if you had the right situation. So that's another way in which all of this instability, I think, takes its toll on a team, is that it's possible that you had a QB that was at least competent. And I think, by the way, this year's 
crop with Tyrod and and Baker Mayfield the way he's looked in the in the preseason could have a chance to at least r- rise to that level of competency that yeah. basic level that that the Browns haven't had in a while and certainly didn't have last year. Uh, but yeah, there were probably other players that could have reached that level if they had been uh, put into a better support structure, but because they didn't, it just sort of compounded upon itself. Uh, and that's how you end up with, you know, the worst quarterbacking by a country mile of any team uh, over the last two decades. And, and that's the thing, like that's the ultimate question. Obviously there's lots of Browns fans who wish they would have, drafting Carson Wentz but it's you know would Carson Wentz have been Carson Wentz in this structure with this team given the past you know if they had signed Tony Romo would Tony Romo have become Tony Romo here I mean you can't there are some quarterbacks that could certainly overcome things you know unique talents they change the culture themselves they're just so good it doesn't matter but I think everybody understands that you know what's around them, players on the field, head coach, structure of the organization obviously influences the success of a quarterback too. Um, the, the last one, and, and this is just another one that's just hard to wrap your head around, the idea of, of how bad they've drafted. Mm-hmm. Again, just that, you know, if they would have taken, and, and they've had chances, they could have drafted Khalil Mack. You know, he was out there. They could have drafted Julio Jones the one year instead of trading that pick away. We know the the terrible history of first round picks just again like numerically it's just an outlier that they all failed right that like they didn't hit on anything that again sometimes by accident if you're picking high you get a guy who's going to be pretty good no matter what the numbers just tell you that it is just absolutely absurd for them to have failed in the first round especially to to this degree right yeah and and there's been a lot of research done. There was a famous paper by Casey uh, and Richard Thaler. There, there are these kind of behavioral economics uh, statistician type guys that wanted to look at the draft as an efficient market. Sort of this idea that uh, basically NFL teams as a whole are really good at identifying talent. And uh, since they're all sort of really good at it, any deviations from uh, the expected long-term value of a pick, you know, the first, uh, the first pick in the draft, turns out to be a much better player than the 51st pick in the draft on average uh, and it sort of continues down in this very orderly uh, fashion uh, all the way down to Mr. Irrelevant uh, over time but there are uh, differences in any given draft and and they wanted to see well are there just gms that are so shrewd they can consistently get value above and beyond what you would expect at a given pick and they found that no not really that most of the differences between teams and how they draft uh and and who they get after adjusting for where they're picking is random it's just the luck of the draw as to whether you get a player that turns out to be a superstar at a low draft position or a guy who turns out to be a bust at a high pick but the browns are sort of like this uh this colossal uh i I don't even know what it is it's this anti-example it's this counter example to that theory because if that theory holds true that and given especially the the high picks that the browns have had over the years you would think that the odds that they would be so bad even after adjusting for where they picked especially after adjusting for where they picked would be astronomical that there would be no way that a team would be able to 
pick that poorly uh, <laughs> over such a sustained period of time uh, by by chance alone that uh, the argument that the draft is mostly just chance uh, after adjusting for pick value sort of falls apart with the Browns. And I think uh, that was another part of what I was trying to, to wrap my brain around, uh, to use your words, when I was researching this story is everything that we know uh, or think that we know about the way that the NFL's talent market works is based around some of these seminal pieces of research and the Browns sort of fly in the face of that research just by being so bad. Uh, you know, the NFL being this league designed for parody, uh, and yet you have a team that has been so almost you couldn't build a team that was less competitive if you would set out to do that because the NFL has mechanisms to try to drag bad teams upward in spite of themselves. And the draft is a great example of that. Uh, and so that was one of the things that fascinated me most about the research that I did for the Browns is that they're just this outlier in the opposite direction of the, of the ethos that we hear about from the NFL, that it's about, you know, teams can luck into or skill their way into making better picks and getting better over time and that all roads end at this eight and eight uh you know record uh, if, if you give it enough of a, a, a runway to get there and for the browns that just has not seemed to be true and there are counterexamples at the other end i mean the patriots are a great uh example over practically exactly the same time period they have defied things in the opposite direction uh pretty much as much as the browns have in in the negative direction and i keep coming back to that instability factor because the Patriots have put in a system. They've had the same coach. Uh, he's pretty much been the de facto GM. And, and the thing that really will kill Browns fans, I know as I'm saying this, uh, and really, you know, made me feel a certain way also as I was researching the story is the guy that built the Patriots to what they are was the coach of the Browns and the de facto GM of that team. Uh, and so, you know, it, it really is mind-boggling to think about the fact that uh, Belichick was successful, so successful in New England, and wasn't able to do that uh, in Cleveland. And I, I don't know what explains that. I mean, that that's a little outside the scope of, of the research that I did, because it does sort of make you think, like, is is this team cursed? Like, what what is going on with it? Ah, it I is. Know. It's it's like a, it, it does have to come back to that place. <laughs> Unfortunately, any of these conversations. Do. Yeah, it, it is. It's like a Greek tragedy again. Not not just it that is. the the best team is the best team and the worst team is the worst team, but the worst team used to employ the guy who helped the best team become the best team, but then they moved and it all fell apart. So here's 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 two final questions, big picture questions for you, Neil. One of them is, and I think a lot of Browns fans this. Listening to all this, and again, uh, people have to go read this story. Listening to it, looking at your numbers, you're quantifying things that Browns fans have seen with their eyes and felt with their heart, but you're putting numbers to it. It seems like to me, if all these other things, how can this happen? How can this happen? How can this happen? The ultimate constant, I don't think the city is cursed. I don't think it's geographic. Pittsburgh's no, the, right. The Cavs proved that. Yeah. Uh, the, 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 they broke that curse. And, it, the, the, you know, Pittsburgh's just down the road. It's not like in this part of the country you can't build a winning football team. I would go to ownership. Jimmy Haslam bought the team in 2012. The Lerner family had owned them since they came back. 
Is that where, would the numbers lead you to that? That there is something, they've had two owners. It's not like they've had 10 owners. Could it be possible that they've just had people in charge who have done a poor job building that stability, which seems so important, and then the instability has contributed to, or maybe just led to, no quarterback, terrible drafts. But when it all comes back, what's the constant? The constant are the people who make the ultimate decisions, the Lerner family and now Jimmy Haslam. Is it possible that maybe the numbers, when you're looking for an answer, would, would, it, would a scientific mathematical assessment of this maybe lead you to that? Well, yeah, I, I think that that was kind of the conclusion that I came to from looking at the, the organizational chaos, uh, is that the owners are ultimately who makes the decisions, like you said. That's sort of where the buck stops for each franchise. And the the, the influence of the ownership and the and the philosophy that they take, or sort of a, if there's a non-philosophy, if there's sort of an aimlessness to the decisions that are made, and uh, I would characterize the Browns' approach over the past two decades, but especially in recent years, as fitting that. It's been so scattershot. Uh, and, and to come back to something that I said earlier, this idea of them not sticking with any given plan, any given uh, huge long-term strategy for the franchise longer than a year or two before pulling the plug. And I'm not saying that the strategy that any one of their GMs have had was, was the right strategy you know, Sashi Brown built a team that was, uh, as John Dorsey said, not really full of very good NFL players, if not, you know, not not full of NFL level players. Uh, and, and you can argue as much as you want about how much of that was deliberate, how much of it was part of a long term plan to kind of build up the team at a later date. But the thing is, we'll never know uh, beyond the extent to which all of the draft picks have, uh, you know, will come in in future years or came in last spring and are, are being used now to kind of fill out the rest of the team. Uh, but that's the, the overriding phrase that you can say about a lot of the plans that have been put in, into place by the Browns over the years is we'll never know how they would have played out if given a chance to play out to, to fruition. But because the Browns have chosen to abandon things very quickly and sort of just take like a complete 180 on a so frequently uh, that any kind of long-term organizational planning has never been given a chance to succeed. And that, I think, is, you know, numerically through the, the chaos points and through all of this, these other things, it's a consequence of that attitude that ownership has had that if we don't see results from something within a season, then that's it. That It must be wrong. We're going to move on to the next thing. If you do that enough and if you keep trying these, I call them get-rich-quick schemes mm -hmm. in the story, these ideas of, you know, well, we're going to draft this guy that the, the numbers may not say is right or the scouts may have their doubts about, you know, as a character person, Johnny Manziel comes to mind, but yeah. there have been other others over the years, too, uh, that, you know, they keep trying to hit home runs, especially at the top of the draft with these very risky picks uh, and I think that that's also symptomatic of this idea that there's no time, there's no, there's no patience to, to kind of see if anything works because you know that you're looking over your shoulder and you've seen what happened to the previous GM or the previous coach uh, and you've seen 
quickly that they were, you know, given uh, their pink slip uh, for not delivering. So you end up with this mentality of, well, I got to I got to hit a home run now. Uh, and who cares about three, four five years down the road? And everyone starts to have that mentality over time when they see the way that the franchise has been handled. And it just sort of snowballs into uh, really bad football that seems like it's sort of irreversibly broken uh, over two decades. So from a mathematical standpoint then, Neil, when you have something like this, when you have um, a situation that is such an outlier in so many ways, and again, you you made a good point that sort of everything in the NFL – trends toward everybody being eight and eight you know there's there's, it's hard to stand out when you see that the Browns have stood out this way for two decades does that lead you does that make you more inclined to believe well it's gotta turn at some point because they have to head back toward the middle just mathematically by 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 just how things work does it have to turn around at some point or sometime, or is it more like, well, they're, they're past the point of no return. Like they're off the no. cliff. It's never going to change. No, I mean, that's the great thing about the NFL is I don't think that there is a point of no return. You know, there's no relegation. It's not like it's English soccer where, you know, you can be sort of banished to a totally different league if you're bad enough for for long enough. Uh, And so for the Browns, and I think we're seeing this with a lot of the moves that they made this offseason and just the way that they seem to be approaching this team is if you stop concentrating on trying to find shortcuts to get from – being three and 13 to winning the Super Bowl in a season, you know, or, or something like that. If you just concentrate on building block by block, uh, you know, some kind of toward respectability, some kind of roster that can compete as a first step and then see where that takes you. And I think that's fair to characterize the way that they have approached uh, this iteration of the Browns. We'll see how it works out. Uh, I I don't think it's the first time that someone has sat down and tried to build that way uh, over the last 20 years, but uh, it certainly is the first time the Browns have done it maybe in a five-year period uh, or something. Uh, And so, you know, I think that that approach is how you end up taking a team that went 0-16, and they'll probably make a big leap just through by virtue of the fact that they lost so many one-score games last year. They, they had so many turnovers in the red zone. Uh, there, there are all of these indicators that you would think their turnover margin was, was so bad. These are little kind of, you know, bits and pieces that can – just through sheer what we call regression to the mean, uh, just just by being less unlucky, basically, uh, you can make pretty big gains at first. I think you know it's easier to take a team that went zero and sixteen and make them go six and ten than it is to take a team that went six and ten and make them go twelve and six. You know, right. uh, but, but I think that the Browns, the first step for them is just making that that those gains toward respectability uh, and then seeing where you can get and letting the NFL's parody creating machines sort of help you. And I think in a lot of cases, you know, some of these mistakes that previous GMs and coaches have made in running the, the organization have been in sort of almost like resisting the help of the NFL's long-term eight and eight, you know, pull and saying, no, 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 we're going to do it faster. We're going to do it right now. And then you, 
you end up just digging yourself into a deeper and deeper hole. And I'm hoping that uh, based on the, the way that the team seems to be built uh, and the way that John Dorsey and Hugh Jackson have been kind of going uh, now is that they do have maybe a longer uh, time period in mind to build the team toward something beyond just, hey, this year. But, you know, that's very easy to say in the preseason yeah. or in the offseason. Uh, Hugh Jackson is a coach that has won one of his last 32 games. Uh, and so you have to think that if the team does get out to a bad start this year uh, and, and all of this hype that's sort of been built around it especially with hard knocks and everything like that uh doesn't really pay off at first maybe they'll be right back where they were and trying to kind of get uh go through a a really quick fix or or changing things up again uh and and that's how you end up being a team that uh becomes so bad for such a long period of time i am in favor of the idea of not firing people all the time i'm not sure i would have stopped that with hugh jackson it's like, yeah, all right. That, that's what's so funny is that was your perfect opportunity to kind of uh, justifiably fire someone. Right. Uh, and, and they didn't take it. Of all the right. time, you know, for all the firings that they have made over the years, that's the time they decided not to. I will say, I think we could go 50 50 on a t shirt company with the slogan regression to the mean. 2018 <laughs> Cleveland Browns, <laughs> yes. the path to eight and eight, and just yes. get people really excited about the idea of like just mathematically you shouldn't suck this long, so it's got to turn at some point. Um, well, if you hold a parade when you go zero and sixteen, uh, why can't you hold a parade when you go eight and eight? Uh, let's get I've. I may float that. That might be my next <laughs> column. That might be my next column. Um, Neil Payne, fascinating stuff. The Brown suckiness defies math and reason. You can find it, guys, on 538.com. Neil, thanks so much for the conversation. And uh, if they do something mathematically interesting down the road, um, I'll call you and we'll do it again on Takes by the Lake. I would love to. Thank you for having me. All right, man. Thanks. All right, thanks to Neil. Last one up, Melissa Jacobs. Really fun conversation with her. I did her podcast the other day. She got very interested in the Browns through Hard Knocks, and she has just a really good perspective on this. And I just want to add my final comment heading into the Browns season. I think we all have to decide what we think the Hugh Jackson tax is on this team. Um, Previous guest Pete Smith, I saw him use that phrase on Twitter. Um, You have to account for it. Um, I think there, you know, there's two things that can happen here, and and both are good for Browns fans. Um, and we're just being realistic. I'm not attacking Hugh Jackson right now. Okay, I think he has done a bad job. I think he's been bad for the Browns. But but that was my statement. I wrote it. You guys saw it. You guys saw my question to the press conference. He wasn't happy. Um, that was that was January. My my opinion from January hasn't changed. Okay. But there's no point in restating it a thousand times. So it's the same opinion from January. I don't think he should be the head coach. He is. So I'm not basing anything on the preseason. I'm not basing anything on hard knocks. I'm going to see what Hugh Jackson does this season. But based on what I thought in January, I'm knocking a couple wins off what I think they could be based on his leadership, based on his decision-making, based on his motivational skills. Um, Yes, Todd Haley helps. Yes, him not calling plays helps, but he's still the head coach, and and coaching matters. And I don't think the Browns have one of the best coaches in the league. So one of two things is going to happen. People like me are going to be proven wrong, and and Hugh Jackson is going to show that with a more talented roster, he is a good coach. 
or he's not going to get it done, and I think the Haslam's are going to pull the plug, and they're going to have a different coach next year, and that will be the next step in this rebuild, okay? So that's where we are. I, I, the, the idea, the worst-case scenario is like 6-10, and 7-9, pretty good. Oh, they had some bad luck. Well, it wasn't great, but it wasn't, it wasn't terrible. Let's keep Hugh. I think you either want to see this is the guy. Yes, people like me have been wrong. I will write it. I've told Hugh that I'll write it. If, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I'm not rooting for him to fail. I just think he has failed so far. But I think just like with Deshaun Kaiser, the one good thing about Deshaun Kaiser last year was they figured out, at least for Cleveland, he was a no. He was mishandled. He was thrown in. But you looked at that guy. They played him enough to realize he's not our answer. Okay, You have to get a sense from Hugh Jackson. At the end of this season, the Browns need to say he is our answer or he's not our answer. If they are still caught in limbo... That is trouble. I don't think they will be caught in limbo. I think he'll get through the year. I'm not sure firing him in the middle of the year does anything. I think the only reason he would be fired in the middle of the year is if he is drastically mishandling Baker Mayfield. And given how he handled Cody Kessler and Deshaun Kaiser the previous two years, I think that's possible. But if the Haslam's see that, that's why you make a move. You don't make a move because they're losing. They already lost. If you were making a move on losing, he's gone. So if they're just going through a season where it feels like, man, they have more talent than this, they're losing games, why did he make that decision? Man, they don't feel like they have enough energy. You get through the year and you go get the best coach you can get, and I think you can get somebody with this roster and this salary cap space. I think you can get somebody. I think you can have your, we got rid of Jeff Jeff Fisher, we hired Sean McVay move that the Los Angeles Rams made. I think that's out there for the Browns if they need to do it. I'm not saying they need to. But I'm saying what we see from Hugh Jackson this season, I hope it tells the Haslams one way or another because you cannot waste this cap space, these rookie contracts on good players, this young talent. You cannot waste it in limbo. You need the coach that can get this team into a playoff race in 2019. And that either after this season, either Hugh Jackson must have proven he's that guy Or you must say, no, he's not that guy and we're making a change. You can't be stuck on maybe. You cannot give Hugh Jackson a fourth year on maybe. I'm open-minded on Hugh. There's no reason to be anything but that right now. But on Sunday, we get our first proof, and the Haslams need an answer either way. Our final guest, Melissa Jacobs, really fun outside perspective, really important to get out of our Cleveland bubble sometimes and ask how are other people seeing Cleveland football. You'll enjoy this conversation, the final part of our preview on Takes by the Lake. All right, happy to be joined on Takes by the Lake by Melissa Jacobs, founder, managing editor. She is the football girl. She runs the football girl. You can find her on Twitter, at the football girl. Um, Great website, covers football, covers fantasy football. I did her uh, podcast the other day. It was great. Now she is returning the favor, and Melissa Jacobs, who also used to work at ESPN and Sports Illustrated, is on the phone from Oakland to talk about the Cleveland Browns. So, Melissa, thank you for your time. Thank you so much for having me. I just hope that, you know, as Hugh Jackson would say, I I represent myself well and I can earn my stripes. (sighs) You know what? If you do well on this podcast, I will send you a stripe to just stick on your head and just wear around Oakland. Okay, I, and I'm gonna I'm gonna wear it until the Browns get their first win. So 
I'm yeah. excited. Very cool. Um, all right, Melissa. So I think that the, the the perspective I'm looking for you for um from you for this season preview Browns podcast is as someone who who is not in the Browns bubble, right? You cover the whole mm-hmm. league. You have the Browns right. in context, but you have become interested in the Browns through Hard Knocked, especially. They're one of your five most intriguing teams for this season, which is the podcast I joined you on the other day. Um, right. Why Why are you so intrigued by them? Is it just that they were on Hard Knocks and you know what? You get an inside look at any team and, and you would have gotten interested in whichever team was on Hard Knocks this year? Or was there something in particular about the, about the Browns that fascinated you? Well, there's certainly a Hard Knocks effect, Doug, but I, I wouldn't say that the Bucks, for instance, were remotely intriguing heading into the season last year. So it's certainly not all that. Um, you know, there there's a massive turnover, as you know. I mean, it's the, you look at the roster, and I mean, obviously, the change in the quarterback room. You start there. I'm very intrigued as as we talked about on my podcast the other day. Why Hugh Jackson still has a job, which some of that incompetence was very illustrated during Hard Knocks um, and heightened. So just just kind of his continued employment. You know, you have this this super intriguing quarterback room. You have the future of the franchise who's already looked great, who has the persona of Baker Mayfield and, and, you know, is, is Hugh Jackson going to muck that up? You know, he, Hugh Jackson's probably not there for the long haul. So can he just kind of keep things afloat until, you know, you bring in whatever hotshot offensive mind that, that is the trend of the NFL right now um, to, to elevate the team. You know, you have Jarvis Landry. I mean, Josh Gordon alone is incredibly fascinating. I mean, this is a, potentially generational wide receiver at least what we saw in 2013 and there's just i mean we literally have no idea how he's going to perform when he takes the field um so it's it's very you know popcorn ridden material from my perspective and i will say from i asked this question on twitter the other day i before i booked um you know everybody to come on my podcast who are your most five intriguing and i got tons of responses and the browns were probably the most consistent answer really? probably you know a hundred people that responded to me so so from your perspective again as someone who understands the context of the whole league you're intrigued like do you think it's going to work like when you look at Josh Gordon and, and Jarvis Landry and Tyrod Taylor and Baker Mayfield in the quarterback room and a running back room of Carlos Hyde and Nick Chubb and Duke Johnson, and I guess we'll stay on the offensive side of the ball to start off. But like, do you look at that and are you expecting a car crash? Are you are, are you thinking like you know what this team has been terrible, but I actually see some talent here, and the thing I'm interested in is it's it's hard sometimes in the Brown bubble in the Browns bubble. They definitely have more talent than they had last year, but when you look at those skill players I just talked about, does that seem like competent NFL talent overall in the context of the league to you, or do you look at the Browns and say, well, no, there's still a step short here, a step short there? I mean, this isn't a playoff team, clearly, but yeah, I mean, all the names you rattled off, I mean, I'm, I saw Carlos Hyde in San Francisco, and he was never really utilized properly. I mean, I... I think he's looked great so far and kind of excited to see what he can do. And Todd Haley's um, offense, I mean, you you know, you have a healthy Miles Garrett who, I mean, is literally a, 
you know, a one-man disruptor. Um, you know, you have the the quarterbacks are intriguing. I mean, there, there's just a, there are a lot of unknowns. Again, I go back to Josh Gordon. Um, so it could be a complete train wreck. I mean, this could be a three-win team. This could be a, probably an eight-win team at max. Um, but, you know, you look at teams, you know, you have this star-studded roster in a sense, but then you look at a team like the Rams, for instance, and you have a keep to leave and Marcus Peters, and, you know, you have crazy egos over there. And, I mean, granted, that team has a lot more talent top to bottom, but when you think about teams that could kind of, potentially implode in the locker room, you know, mm-hmm. once the ego, egos get into real, you know, I don't put the Browns there because there is talent, but there's not, I, I don't see a lot of crazy egos, especially, you know, from the hard knocks perspective, shining down on Mayfield, who seems perfectly content backing up for at least part of the season. So, um, yeah, I think the vast unknown is, I think that really is why this team is, is so intriguing. Do you think, and, and I'm curious about this, Melissa, do you think the rest of the NFL, the rest of NFL fan bases are kind of rooting for the Browns? Like they they're 1 and 31. They've been so awful. They've been the laughing stock of the league basically since they came back in 1999. Um they've they've either been irrelevant or a joke. And now they have Baker Mayfield, now they have Miles Garrett. They've signed a couple veterans like Jarvis Landry, like um Carlos Hyde. They seem to have a competent offensive line. Like, do, do, do you have any sense at all from your perspective in California, other people you know around the league, other fans that, that you may come across? Do you think people, like, want the Browns to not suck anymore? Or do, do does the rest of the NFL like having Cleveland as a punching bag? <laughs> I think the league does like having punching bags, but, I mean, there's always a punching bag. I mean, the Bills are probably going to be a punching back. The Raiders. The Raiders. The Ra- right, right. The Raiders. are. They're, they're, as long as there's one punching bag, we don't need a lot of punching bags. And, I, yes, the, the Browns are the ultimate lovable loser. I mean, in every, every sense of the word. I mean, it doesn't get as low as it's been for the last two seasons. So, I think, you know, and Hardcore Knox obviously illustrated this team. And, you you know, unlike the Bucks last year, you know, which was basically a ridiculous Jameis Winston redemption tour. You didn't come out of that being like, wow, I really am rooting for the Bucks. Like this guy really, you know, anyone who's followed the news, you didn't really buy it. Yeah. I mean, here, but granted, I mean, they cut all the guys that they focused on in hard knocks. <laughs> right. Like Caduce and, you know, the best of the, the good guys. But, yeah, I mean, how can you not root for Bob Wiley's team? I mean, come on, or Moose the Dog. Yes, Hard Knocks is a, is a big part of it. But in general, yeah, Cleveland is the team that you're so accustomed to, to losing. Like when they win that first game, I mean, maybe it's week three against the Jets. I mean, it's going to be like the Super Bowl. It's going to it's going to definitely reverberate around you know the football zeitgeist, in my opinion. So, so I have a confession to make, Melissa. Okay, I, I didn't love Hard Knocks. Uh, really? I, I, I thought I thought they fell in on clearly they fell in on Orchard and Nassib and Kajust and Bob yeah. Wiley. But I thought I thought they did not dip in very much on you know, Josh Gordon wasn't there, but we had the Jarvis yeah. Landry speech. They really didn't do a ton with Baker Mayfield and like he has his own reality show. I don't know if that was part of that. Um, but like I think David Njoku is more is more interesting. I think they didn't do that much with Miles Garrett. 
I thought the in-game stuff was interesting. I, I actually thought some of the stuff got repetitive at the end. And some of those meetings they showed, I was like, my gosh, if I had to be in, in an NFL meeting, I would bang my head against the wall. Um, I thought I thought it could have been better. And especially the last three episodes I thought were very much the same. They had Brogan Roback. You know, Brogan Roback is yeah. going to touch a lizard. I don't, there was I don't no know. There no for Brogan Brogan. I can't even say his name. Bro, Brogan Ro, Roback yeah. um, in any of it. I, but, I did find all of it. But you liked it. You, you did. And I'm just, you know, it's like watching a movie. It's like people have different opinions. I just, what, what, well, what were your favorite parts of it that you really liked? I mean, I will agree with you that I went downhill after, you know, maybe the third episode. I, I think when Josh Gordon, when they had the, the teaser of Josh Gordon, you know, trotting on the field, it was like, oh, my gosh, we're going to get so much Josh Gordon. And then we didn't get yeah. really any Josh Gordon except that presser. Um, and, yeah, I mean, every week I did. I definitely was like, I want more Miles Garrett. I want and, and maybe he's not the most dynamic personality, and that's why. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just, I loved, I love the number of storylines, which again, Hard Knocks Illustrated, but it also just continues into the season, which is why the team is intriguing. I loved Josh Gordon. I loved the juxtaposition of Todd Haley and Jarvis Landry versus Hugh Jackson in terms of their philosophies, which I know on my podcast, you said you thought, you thought was overblown, um, but that did at least make intriguing television. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I, I loved, you know, I, I just really found like Hughes incompetence throughout the whole series. <laughs> really fascinating. Um, yeah. but, but the last episode, I, I think with hard knocks, honestly, it, obviously we have the spoilers on the three players you mentioned. Yeah. I think they should just, if you're going to have to do hard knocks, I think part of the deal is you have to, do your cuts live on Hard Knocks Ooh, like, yeah. the last episode on Sunday or something because it was you know it was definitely a letdown this last yeah. one I'll, I'll let you go with this one then Melissa the, the, and again I'm just very curious on your perspective of this as someone as a football analyst from outside Cleveland there is a lot of discussion still here in Cleveland and I've tried to get away from it a little bit because I feel like a lot of it is media fighting but there's a lot of like people who thought Sashi Brown set them on the right path and did the right thing as the GM and tanking and you know trading down and trying to start this rebuild. And there are people who hate Sashi Brown and think John Dorsey has come in to save the franchise from the mess that Sashi Brown left. That debate goes back and forth. I'm on the Sashi Brown side, but at this point, he's fired. The Browns have what they have. All the players on the roster are Browns, regardless of how they got there. But the idea of a team absolutely tearing down. They were 1-31 with a purpose. They had an idea. They did what the Sixers did. They did what the Houston Astros did. How much does that intrigue you just to see if that works? And do you think that is something that will work in the NFL? If this works in Cleveland, do you think more teams will try that? Or do you sort of believe that the NFL is not built for that? It's a parody league. There's not a minor league system. Careers are shorter. The idea of a tank to really bottom out should not work in the NFL. And even if the Browns start to win, you know, it's not something that people should follow. That idea, is there something at play here that maybe could reverberate through the league if it works? 
I mean, in a way, it's kind of going on in Oakland, um, giving up Khalil Mack. Um, But, yeah, I think that, um, you know, I guess guess we'll see if it works. I I definitely agree with you on Sashi Brown. It feels like Q should have been the guy out there because they already had the talent. Um, You know, it certainly helps when you don't have a quarterback you know, a, a high paid quarterback. You have right. obviously B- Baker's going to be on that rookie deal. Um, yeah. I mean, I think especially if, if they do, if you just see that, that upward trajectory this year, again, I mean, three games, not so much, but if you get to like seven or eight, then I mean, I, I think, yeah, I think a lot of teams would certainly follow that model and just really like start with almost a blank easel again. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so you're so you'll be watching. You'll be watching from Oakland, curious. Yeah, yeah. I have um, my setup, so I have direct. Sometimes I go cover games, but when I don't, I have four TVs in my living room, um, all piped in with the Sunday ticket. So one of them will always be on the Browns now until they go, unless they go like zero and seven. Yeah, that alone, that alone is progress. That there is any single person in Oakland (laughs) who will have one of her four TVs always on the Browns is some form of progress no matter what. That's what I've said. I don't know I don't know that they'll be good. They have to be better, but I'm certain that they will be interesting. That right, I am certain right. of. And, and and they're helped by, you know, so the teams in the division all have, you know, huge issues right now. So yep. I mean, that's going to, you know, maybe get them an extra win or two. And I do think that's a tr- do you see that trending at all? I'm writing about that, the idea that I, I think you could look at the Ravens, the Bengals, and the Steelers and, and just mostly the Steelers because they've been so good. If you believe the Steelers are going to be good no matter what because they have the organization in place, but they have a lot of important older guys, I think you, you depending what you think of Lamar Jackson, you could see a world where the Bengals and Ravens are potentially trending down. It feels like oh, you know if the Browns are on the way up, maybe there's an opening here. That if you're If the Browns were in right. a division with the Eagles – it's going to be hard for the Browns to be the best team in their division, but they're not. They're in a division right. with three older right. teams. Right. They're in the AFC. They're they're in the AFC North. It's very advantageous. They're just in the AFC in general, which is also yep. advantageous when you look at it as a whole. And you get the Roman Empire of New England's going to fall at some point. So, well, you know, all all of the talent, all of it is skewing NFC now. So, I mean, it's really a great opening for yeah. Cleveland. I think. Well, they will be on the television of Melissa Jacobs in Oakland. <laughs> At the football girl, um, listen to her podcast, follow her on Twitter. Um, Melissa, thank you so much for your time, and I hope we can do this again sometime. Oh, thank you so much, Doug. This was great. Thanks. And that's it. If you made it this far, God bless you. You made it through an hour and 38 minutes of a Brown season preview. Thanks to all of our guests. Thanks to you guys for listening. That was fun. We usually don't go this long, but I wanted to get a variety of voices. I hope that gave you kind of a different look at this Browns season. So I'll be there Sunday, Browns versus Steelers. I'll be at Ohio State on Saturday. That's my plan for this season, um, to be at all the Browns home games, at all the Ohio State games. So I'll be doing a lot of football, which is good. Football is interesting. So thanks to you guys for listening and for reading. I'm Doug Lane Maurice. That was Takes by the Lake. And we'll talk to you next time.